1: Family caregivers don't have to be alone in their experiences. You will hear from experts and other caregivers facing the same issues that you may be facing. Now, here is your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley.
2: Welcome to Episode 208 of Family Caregivers Unite. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, your host. Our topic today is Physicians, Humane, Caring, and Family Caregivers. Humane caring involves things like sympathy with and consideration for the needs and distresses of sick people and feeling or showing compassion and tenderness towards sick people. For many years, physicians' treatments have been influenced by the technical or scientific approaches which hold that health is orderliness of body functions and that disease is disorderliness of body functions. Now during this time the technical or scientific treatments were focused more and more on restoring the orderliness of body functions and they've been used very successfully by physicians. But technical or scientific treatments may also increase the suffering of sick people, such as patients with incurable cancers who are receiving powerful chemotherapy and likely to avert their deaths. The problem here is that treatments which ignore such suffering may not be humane. Now recently, physicians' treatments have also been influenced by the human rights movement. This holds high The rights of persons to make their own decisions, such as who should and who should not see their medical records. Now we have the idea of the circle of care, which defines the healthcare professionals who can presume that their patients agree to the sharing of their medical records, but only among the healthcare professionals. The problem here is that the circle of care is usually closed to family caregivers caring for family members. This problem is causing more and more difficulties for physicians and for family caregivers who, more and more, are caring at home for family members with serious and often incurable illnesses, which is why our topic, Physicians, Humane, Caring and Family Caregivers, is so important. To discuss it, our guest is Dr. Brian Hodges. Now, Brian is Professor in the Faculty of Medicine and the Faculty of Education at the University of Toronto. He's the Richard and Elizabeth Curry Chair in Health Professions Education Research at the Wilson Centre for Research in Education. And he's Vice President of Education at the University Health Network. He leads the AMS Phoenix Project, which aims to rebalance the technical and the compassionate ways of healthcare. care. His research focuses on various aspects of health, professional education and practice, including competence, assessment, professionalism and globalization. And together with his colleagues at McGill University, he's currently undertaking a three-year project funded by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council to study excellence, diversity and equity in Canadian medical school's admissions processes. So welcome to the show, Brian. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to join you. Great stuff. Now, question for you, first off. Please tell us more about your personal story. Well,
3: I have a a windy pathway that takes me to where I am today. I actually began when I was 16, 17, I think, in my first job as a nursing orderly. It's a profession that doesn't exist today but it was uh, uh, essentially an assistant to the nursing department of a hospital and that was my first encounter with with compassion in fact my one of my first jobs at that young age it's remarkable to me today but was something called care after death and when someone was deceased through a resuscitation or or uh, or uh, an illness and died in hospital it was actually my job to be the interface with the patient and the family before they were sent to the nursing home or to the um, to the um, funeral home or wherever they would pass in the next phase. And this was a really a remarkable privilege for me at that time. Um, It was also a time when I worked in uh, long-term care and I was an assistant on a, on a a unit for people who had been in the institution for quite some time. And uh, so this, these things, these early experiences really helped me uh, think about many of the, um, aspects of healthcare I would encounter later in medical school. I went to Queen's University Medical School in Canada, in Kingston, and after that I did a training in psychiatry, but also I did a PhD in education. I was very interested in the, uh, in the improving the quality of health professions education. And then uh, my special area uh, I took on was an area called medical psychiatry. I did a fellowship in that area. And that's an overlap area between the physical and the um, psychological parts of medicine, mostly working with uh, organ transplant patients, those having cardiac and other kinds of surgery in the intensive care unit, and some palliative patients. So today, as you mentioned, I'm a vice president of a large hospital in Toronto, Ontario, Um, In fact, it's a chain of uh, connection of four large hospitals, and my role there is to help promote all forms of education, uh, including um, what we're talking about today, which is the humane, person-centered, compassionate care. And you've also commented that I lead the uh, AMS Phoenix Project, and uh, that project itself, uh, which began last year, is an effort to really try to refocus, as you said, the balance between the technical and the compassionate and humane components of practice.
2: Let's go straight then to this question. Please tell us about the AMS Phoenix project, Brian.
3: There's an interesting story that precedes it. Uh, Canada adopted uh, a socialized health care system at the end of the 60s. Prior to that, there were several insurance companies run by physicians, and they collected money and used it uh, just as any insurance company would would, would be to insure uh, uh, private uh, health care. But then when the social system came in place, several of them were able to keep their funds if they became charities. And the Associated Medical Services was one of those. So since the um, end of the 60s or the 70s, the Associated Medical Services has funded projects, and they have targeted uh, three areas, basically, uh, ethics, history of medicine, and education. I actually was involved with them uh, back about, oh, more years than I care to count when I was a medical student Uh, early on. uh, They created a project called Educating Future Physicians for Ontario. And at that time, 25 or more years ago, the focus was to try to improve the ability of physicians to communicate with patients. There had been a consensus conference held in in Ontario that was sponsored by the uh, Canadian Cancer Society that was... uh, highlighting the fact that physicians were often not communicating well with uh, patients and with families. And so the uh, AMS funded this project some 20, 25 years ago. Uh, Over the past two decades, they they became interested again in revisiting this subject. And in 2010, their uh, board chair, a, a man named Bill Schrag, cardiovascular thoracic surgeon, made a tour of the province of the medical schools, but this time also the nursing schools and various healthcare institutions, and, and asked how an organization like AMS could once again contribute to improving healthcare and health education. And what he heard was a repeated message that while medical education and healthcare education in general had improved in some ways, that we now did teach communication skills, that there was a, a technical quality to it, and that that very often. In hospitals, in healthcare settings, and even in health professional schools, the technical components were trumping or overshadowing the the humane and compassionate side. So in 2011, the organization sponsored a number of provincial summits. They focused on such things as hidden curriculum, uh, toxic environments, toxic for students and patients and families. They talked about the, the loss of... Patient story, the need for narrative. In a world where we have a lot of drop-down menus, electronic records, and and the like, how to preserve the story that that is somebody's illness experience. So all of those summits led to a, a decision by the Associated Medical Services to launch a new project that would be dedicated to rebalancing compassion and technical components of care, and that it would focus on both educational institutions, medical schools and nursing schools and other health professional schools, but also sites of care, sites of practice, hospitals, and clinics. So the project was launched last year, and I'm very lucky to be the lead of it. I'm the, it's called the Phoenix Project today, Phoenix being a metaphor of sort of rising from the ashes or, or, or rising back up from, from, uh, from where we've been hopefully going somewhere a little brighter. And uh, that's the project that I lead today.
2: Very good. Now, it's subtitled, this project of yours, Project Phoenix, A Call to Caring. Please tell us what's being called for. During the summits I mentioned, there were a
3: number of eye-opening experiences. And and one I will share with you and with uh, the people listening to this discussion. Uh, It was moving to me at the time. We were uh, in the midst of a session talking about toxic environments, and uh, I was uh, in the the course of explaining the goal of the project and and the need to rebalance the compassionate component of care and whatnot. And we were deep into a discussion about why people should choose to go into the health professions. And I noticed at a certain point that one of my colleagues across the table, a senior physician, someone who's been a leader in, in uh, both health care and education in Toronto for, for many years, was tearful. He was becoming tearful. And I stopped and I asked him, what what was going on. And he explained that, that all of the discussion we were engaged in was taking him back to why he had gone into medicine in the first place. And he was realizing through the discussion that he'd lost some of that. He'd lost some of the connection with why he originally chose to be a physician. And this was a message that we heard several times. We often heard about burnout, we heard about the challenges of the healthcare system which puts so much emphasis on efficiency, on moving people through, uh, on some of the things that cause a dehumanizing effect for patients and families, but also for the healthcare professionals. So the subtitle, The Call to Caring, is what we like to think of as a clarion call to those who are in healthcare, who care about healthcare, uh, to to find once again if they've lost or just to remember or to reinforce on those days when it's hard to remember that this is the heart and soul of why people are in healthcare. It's to care. So we call it the Phoenix Project, a call to caring.
2: Very good. Now. We're going to go to the break now um, because this is where, um, Brian, we have to pay the rent. So this is, this is Dr. Gordon Atherley, and my guest is Dr. Brian Hodges. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio for Powell River. Please stay with us. We will be back.
1: What's going on behind the scenes with your favorite Voice America show or host? For the latest news, visit the iRadio blog at iradioblog.com.
4: 30- Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific for the Dr. Pat Show with Dr. Pat Bacilli. radio to thrive by. Time here on VoiceAmerica.com.
1: What's going on behind the scenes with your favorite Voice America show or host? For the latest news, visit the iRadio blog at iradioblog.com. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at FamilyCaregiversUnite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers
2: Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Brian Hodges. Our topic is physicians, humane caring, and family caregivers. So let's now talk about caring as viewed by physicians. And Brian, you've already mentioned an important aspect of that, um, why they joined medicine, so to speak. But... Let's go a little bit more into the detail of how caring has in the past been viewed by physicians.
3: I have a colleague, Dr. Edward Shorter, who's a historian of medicine, and I'm very taken by an argument he makes. His, his belief is that, and this is backed up by some good historical research, prior to the discovery of science and the discovery of many of the treatments that we think are so important today that physicians may have actually been better at building an empathic connection with patients. And we see this in historical photos and uh, representations of the the doctor at the bedside, on the home call, the home visit, uh, the person who knew the family intimately. And we, we recognize that the way care is delivered has changed. But I think there's something important about his argument that when physicians only had the relationships to work with, they, they were more skillful at wielding it as a, as a therapeutic um, tool. I think one of the things that uh, troubles us today, and you referred to this, Gordon, in the opening, was that medicine has a tendency to instrumentalize things. Um, there's a drive to efficiency, of course, and that's important. But there's also a tendency to um, to focus on on the scientific, the the, the cold operational scientific, and, and that's fine when it's a technical procedure. But that doesn't always work very well uh, in a human interaction. So to give an example, some. 15 or 20 years ago, I was involved in the national licensure process for physicians. And at the time, there was emerging research that physicians weren't doing very well with communication. And I had interesting discussions with my colleagues. I was, uh, and perhaps it's partly my psychiatric background, but I think um, many of us share a commitment to communication skills. Uh, Several of my colleagues thought that the exam should have one scenario in it called a communication station in which we would test the ability of a doctor to communicate with a patient or with a family member. What bothered me about that was the notion that communication should be part of every encounter. But this was a little bit counterintuitive at the time. People would say something like, well, but that station is about examining the abdomen, or that station is about doing a neurologic exam. And I think what we had to argue at the time was that, the foundation, the building blocks of a good therapeutic relationship is an empathic connection. So I think medicine is, is in a position where it has at times wavered in terms of the centrality of the, uh, of the empathic relationship it, that it feels that physicians should build with patients and with family members.
2: Now, that leads into the next question. Brian, which is, how do physicians' views of caring need updating, and why do they need updating?
3: Well, I would say something that brought this home in, in an incredibly clear but disturbing way was a year ago or so, I guess two years now, uh, the Cornell Press in the, in the U.S. Uh, started a series of books. Many people would be familiar with a book written by Jerome Groupman called How Doctors Think. And uh, it's interesting because it does sketch out what it's like. And I, I recognize in reading it many things I experienced myself as a physician. But the Cornell Press thought it was important to talk about how patients think and, and that it wasn't sufficient to leave the message that, that the public should learn how physicians think and simply tailor their, their, themselves to that. That's very doctor-centric. So they brought out a series of books, and in one of them I, they asked me if I might write a commentary. This book, it's a wonderful book published by an author, Chloe Atkins. It's called My Imaginary Illness. And in My Imaginary Illness, she struggles with a, a difficult-to-diagnose condition, and she sees many, many physicians, not not just physicians, also nurses and physiotherapists and other others. But it's remarkable, it's remarkable how often those encounters are punctuated by a style of interaction that is not characterized by what I would call just regular, decent human interaction, politeness and respect. Now, there are some wonderful encounters, but what's clear as I read the book to me was that our culture, deep in the healthcare system, if I walk down the hall from my office today and go to the intensive care unit or into the dialysis unit, sometimes the norms, the ways in which people communicate with each other, are not even as healthy or respectful as they are in a regular social encounter. So I would say, in answer to that, what needs to be updated is to be able to have a much more sophisticated, normal way of interacting in our healthcare encounters that is highly respectful and puts a priority on the humane, compassionate, warm, respectful interaction between healthcare professionals and patients and families.
2: Now, I'd like to ask you to say more, please, about the changes in caring that are proposed by the AMS Phoenix Project or are likely to be proposed Mm. and how these could affect officials' views of caring, particularly in the ways that you've just been describing them.
3: there are a number of significant changes in the context of the way healthcare is delivered. Um, Definitely a major change is the move to team-based and interprofessional care. We've been talking largely about physicians, and this program is focusing on physicians, but you've heard me mention many times other health professionals and the interprofessional team. And I think this is really, it's an opportunity, but it's a major challenge as well. As the team multiplies, it's a, it's a terrific opportunity for us to bring multiple perspectives to care, but it probably also multiplies the possibility of things falling through the cracks of miscommunications. So I think we need to really work hard on ways in which people can, in their education programs and then once out in practice, work effectively in, in team-based care. And of course, what your work and uh, this series illustrates is something we talk about in terms of evolving the team so that the patient and patient's families can be considered as part of the team, members of the team. And that's a major shift. So the Phoenix project itself has three thrusts that we hope will advance these, these, uh, these areas. We, we simplify it to three pillars of the project. We talk about champions, strategies, and networks. Now the champions is a deliberate uh, investment in individuals in healthcare settings, both in uh, training programs like universities and colleges, but also in hospitals and practice settings who will role model and lead this sort of um, approach to care. So we've through the project, we award fellowships, and, and perhaps if it's all right, I could just name a couple of names of current fellows and the kind of projects they're working on, just to give an illustration. So, for example, at the University of Ottawa, there is a physician and a nurse combination, Dr. Tara Tucker and marise Bouvette, and their subject for their work is what's called compassion fatigue. And what they're working on is the notion that many people, I mentioned one, I alluded to the physician who became tearful in our meeting. There are people who develop symptoms that look like burnout, that because of uh, their own personal challenges, the environment they work in, perhaps it's a lack of support, they lose the ability to continue to show compassion. So that's an example of a project that really aims to target identifying this and intervening A second example, uh, Dr. Lisa Graves and Dr. Rachel Ellaway at the Northern Ontario School of Medicine are looking at the challenge that we face as things become electronic. I've heard so many times... A patient, the family, they walk into the office and the doctor faces the computer and types things in for five or ten minutes, however long the consultation is, and fails to make eye contact or build a relation. So their fellowship, funded by the project, is looking at ways to maintain compassionate and humanistic care during an encounter which involves now a computer or some other form of electronic media. So um, a third example would be at Queen's University where Dr. Elaine Van Mell, Malajaneja, and Cheryl Klein are looking at the notion of hidden curriculum, studying the fact that in the classroom and in the paper curriculum, the written-down curriculum, we talk about teaching the best in communication and compassion, but then when people get into the wards, the emergency department, other places, sometimes they see different messages. So how do we design education programs that allow people to talk about that and surface their experience if it's different than what is officially taught. So that's the thrust of champions, and you can see in this there are also strategies. We have a research funding stream which which, uh, aims to find and support projects that will make changes in this area, and finally to build networks of individuals across Ontario first, Canada, and hopefully even internationally eventually to advance the notion of caring.
2: Brian, I'd like to ask you a little bit more about this compassion fatigue and the factors that lead to it. For example, uh, it's a long time since I did any, any medicine, a very long time, but there were times when it could be very, very stressful. And those, at least for me, were times when communication wasn't the first thing in my mind. Does that, in your mind, Reflect any of the kind of stresses and strains that physicians and other healthcare professionals are subject to that can lead to that sense of compassion fatigue?
3: Absolutely, absolutely. I think the, a, a very important thing for us all, everyone to recognize, is that healthcare for patients, for families, and for health professionals is very stressful. We all, each day, every day, I encounter uh, situations which are tiring, which are fatiguing, and we we all have to support one another to to perform well. And I think what works, uh, I mentioned Tucker and Bouvet's work, there are others who work in this field, have pointed out something actually rather simple, which is we don't talk about it. Uh, for it might be a surprise to your listeners, but as health professionals, there are actually very few opportunities where people have the chance to reflect. Sometimes it comes out in inappropriate or, 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 for example, humor. People will use humor. Sometimes it's even overheard in a staff room or a hospital, which isn't always the best way to let off steam. But the real deep reflection and thinking about what it means to be in tough situations is sometimes missing. I'll give the example of palliative care or, or people who work with patients who are uh, having uh, a, um, a terminal uh, course to their illness where they're, they're either in the process of, of dying or they have a disease. For example, I mentioned I work with organ transplant patients. I have the very peculiar situation of patients who are often close to death and then perhaps get an organ transplant at the very last minute and, and then are well again. So people who have to work with patients who are going in and out of disease or illness or very close to the edge of, of being alive or not is in a terribly stressful situation. I think that compassion fatigue can arise when the health professional doesn't attend to or is sometimes even unaware of the toll that their work is taking on them. And so one of the things that we need to do, I think, is to work with students, but then probably give booster shots or or revisit with people who are in practice uh, opportunities to to ventilate about this to express it to think about it to work through it and perhaps in some cases to take a break maybe to change the pace of work in some way or to uh, to do something that can help them rebalance within themselves the ability to be caring and compassionate
2: right now um We need the short break right now. Uh, This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, and my guest is Dr. Brian Hodges. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio for Power River. Please stay with us. We're coming back.
5: Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN.
6: Think of the world 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it will be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice
0: America. How do you feel about the future? Tune in each week for Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with host Kate Ebner.
5: Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN.
1: You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg.com at FamilyCaregiversUnite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite.
2: Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Brian Hodges. Our topic is physicians, humane caring, and family caregivers. Let's now talk about the role of family caregivers in the new world of caring as envisioned by the AMS Phoenix Project. Brian, first question. What name does the AMS Phoenix Project give to family caregivers. Why does it use this name and how does the name reflect its understanding of the role of family caregivers?
3: There there is much discussion about the way to involve both patients and family members in caring. You mentioned the circle of caring earlier. I think I've watched these debates with some, some interest. As a physician who's practiced for many years, strongly valuing the role of patients and families is interesting, but it's also been an evolution. Uh, if, we, if we think, for example, the term patient-centered care, which is used many places, there's a strong positive but as you alluded to in your opening comments, there can be a problem with that. Patient-centered care, which identifies and tries to reorient around the needs of a patient, uh, is, is terrific. You mentioned the electronic portal, for example, and my hospital is one of many that is trying to allow patients to access their records. But what sometimes gets excluded, and you you spoke about this, was other people who are involved in the story, families and other support. A term that we use at the AMS Phoenix Project is person-centered care. And I think person-centered care is interesting and helpful in in a particular way. It gets us out of the debate about what we call the person receiving care. You will be very aware that in my field, there's a, there's a discussion about whether people are called patients or clients or survivors or other things. And, so, and, and of course, in, we often like to work with people to decide and help us tell us what they wish to be called. But I think the notion of person-centered care brings into focus that we're not talking about disease entities, as you mentioned, And we're not only talking about the main index person who is affected by this, but we're talking about the system. So person-centered care can be expanded to the notion of family-centered care, community-centered care fairly easily. I think that we've, we've been purposely a little bit generic in terms of the project and talking about caring and compassion. And you will have heard me in the last segment talking about the health professionals as well. And and I think when we reconceptualize the mix in terms of all those people who have a stake in the well-being of the situation and of the person who presents, that all of those people are due a respect and compassion. And it's probably important that we think about all of the mechanisms I described before equally applying to everybody in that story.
2: Let's go to the this notion of the circle of care. Um, first of all, how does the Phoenix Project view the circle of care, and what do you think about including family caregivers in it? We,
3: I can't say that we've deliberately used the term, and, and one of the great things about this preparation was learning more about, about uh, Family Caregivers Unite in this series and learning from it, and I think that would be an important point for me to begin with because the Phoenix Project... In no way positions itself as an expert in all things. I think we want to stimulate and catalyze a dialogue about something which seems to be underrepresented in both education of health professionals and in healthcare. So I would be very open to learning about that and thinking more about it. But as I understand your, the notion that you opened with and described, the the individuals who are allowed access to the caring event or the caring moment, you highlighted in the opening a really important one, and that was the debates about patient portals and access to information. Now, I mentioned already that a few people attached to the Phoenix Project are starting to think about the electronic environment, for example. Uh, My hospital, I uh, mentioned at the beginning that I work for the University Health Network, which is a large downtown Toronto hospital, is well into a discussion and development of a patient portal. And as you pointed out, one of the hottest topics is who would have access to information. What's really interesting is finding the right balance between protecting confidentiality but facilitating access and support. I mentioned that I've worked with the uh, organ transplant program for many years. What's interesting in that program, in this hospital, is that everybody going through it is actually required to have a support person and strongly encouraged to have both the support person and the patient together at all encounters where possible. There's a lot of practical reasons for that. Organ transplant is such a a, a debilitating and serious uh, condition that there are times when the patient, him or herself, might not be able to retain the information and a a support person can help with that. But it's much more than that. It's recognizing, and there's substantial literature to back this up, that people do much better, they recover better, and they re-engage the uh, supports in the community around them when they actually have a deliberate uh, connection with support people who are are advocated for within the system. A story comes to mind about this. I had a fellow who came to to see me from the, uh, to work with me from the Philippines. She was fully trained as a physician there, and she came to our hospital. We did rounds on the first day. And I said, so what did you think? How did you? She said, well, the hospital is lovely and seems very modern and, and et cetera, et cetera. She said, but something bothers me. It seems very, very sad that no one in this hospital has any family. And I said, sorry? And she said, yes, it appears that no one, is it, is it, a, is it part of Canada or is it just this hospital? But no one has any family. And I said, "Oh." You'll have to help me unpack that. She said, well, in my hospital in the Philippines, every room would have family around the bed all the time. And it was very interesting. And she said later she found one of the most peculiar things we have was the notion of visiting hours. And she had trouble imagining why we would have times when we excluded family members from the care of patients. It really made me stop and reflect on the fact that I think far too often family members are not considered in the equation or even made invisible in terms of what I uh, perhaps we could expand your your notion of circle of care and I think what we would have to do and I would hope we would do is think about as I said patients but family members as part of the team that provides care.
2: Now I want to switch to um, your medical specialty. Um, as you mentioned you are a psychiatrist by training, but your specialization is, connects you with organ donation and those particular situations. Right. So, and you've already mentioned the need for a support person, uh, for someone undergoing, involved in the process of organ transplant. So I'm going to ask you, what's your view of the role of the family caregiver as the support person mm-hmm. in caring for someone who's involved in the transplantation process. And do you see or foresee any obstacles to those family members, family caregivers being admitted to the circle of care as we've just, just discussed it?
3: Oh, absolutely. Before we go to organ transplant and its complexity, maybe I'll go to something simpler. Two years ago, I had a ruptured appendix. And uh, in the middle of the night, in great pain, I thought, where should we go? And, And I had my partner bring me to my own hospital. And they did a wonderful job in the surgery and emergency and whatnot. But I have to say, and doctors will always say this, as soon as you're a patient, you have a a new vision of what it's like to be inside the system. And one of the things that really did strike me was we're very well-equipped to speak to patients and to give information to patients, but it's very, diff- it was very difficult for my partner to get information from the hospital. And, and I think sometimes the intention was very good about privacy. We have strong laws to protect not sharing information inappropriately, but nevertheless it creates a sense that it's difficult to get information. I think Canadian healthcare system. I I can say a little less about the U.S. system or the European systems, but I think that certainly I can say in Canada, it works far better when a person has an advocate. And this doesn't necessarily mean someone who has a very serious or advanced illness. It doesn't have to be someone who has an advanced cancer or someone who has developed dementia or something. I think that something as simple as an acute surgery actually goes better when We have someone with us who can help navigate through the system. Um, I think this is where a lot of work needs to be done. Now when we go to something as complicated as having an an organ transplantation or uh, another area I work with is the intensive care unit, for example, these are elaborate and complex settings in which someone really has to be alert, cognitively aware, emotionally okay, thoughtful enough, understanding enough to, uh, to and, and able to advocate for themselves if something isn't going well. And, and very, very often the patient who's ill can't do that. So I think what I see um, I, 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 where the work needs to be done. Uh, you talk about admitting a family member to the circle of care. I think that at the moment, we're slightly tilted in that Family members and support people have to kind of push a little bit to be admitted. When uh, I see people frequently walking up to the nursing station in the hospital and, and having to do a little bit of work to be engaged, a little bit of not hostility, but maybe a sort of who are you and why do you want to know? I think that as health professionals and institutions, we have to do a bit, bit more welcoming to indicate that there are people who can be part of this system. Now, I mentioned already other cultures, what's really interesting, North American culture is highly individualistic. And it's, uh, it's very telling that in our exams, when we do simulation for doctors, we create scenarios that are the doctor and the patient. And only very recently has anybody suggested that maybe we should create scenarios for exams, but for teaching, that are doctor, patient, and family member, doctor, patient, and support person, um, and that perhaps we should look at that as as becoming a natural, normal way of interacting.
2: So i just like to come back to you quickly. On the, going from the term person-centered care, we get to support person, and then advocate, and to some extent, and I'm putting this to you as a question the advocate becomes the navigator for the um, for the family member for the person Um, also becomes the eyes and ears of the person when the health condition prevents them from communicating would you go along with that I
3: definitely would but I I, I definitely would I would add to it though something that I've come to appreciate so in my role in the hospital I have Uh, portfolio um, under me, which is called patient education. And this is an area that has grown explosively. Now, as you know from talking with me so far, I've grown up through the area of medical education, the training of doctors and the training of other health professionals. In the last few years, I've become much more aware of the the very central importance of patient education. So, for example, now we've opened a lo- patient library uh, and information center in, at the, on the ground floor of every hospital. And what I've come to appreciate is is that we often greatly uh, overestimate um, uh, people's ability to interact with us as health professionals. Uh, the classic one is we speak in jargon that people don't understand. But it's much more than that, actually. Uh, I, I recently went with a friend who asked me to come along. He had been diagnosed with cancer and he wanted to have an interaction with his doctor. And she was doing a terrific job, I thought. At least the doctor part of me thought she was doing a terrific job. And when we left, I realized that my friend had absorbed almost nothing of what she was saying. Now, part of that is anxiety, part of it is having to be uh, handling a situation where you're told some bad news, but the other part was that this, that a short interaction with a lot of medical information was not attuned to the needs of my friend so what we did was we went down to the library the patient and family library which is on the ground floor and the information person there was very helpful in pointing in direction of information we could both read and I say we both because I'm a physician but the last time I read about some of these different kinds of cancer was a long time ago and so it really brought home for me the importance of working together Uh, with the patient and the family to provide a a lot more information and to engage them in the process which may be a learning process as well
2: Right, now once again it's time to take the break this is Dr. Gordon Atherley and my guest is Dr. Brian Hodges, you're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio for Powell River. Please stay with us, we're coming back
4: in real estate stocks annuities and other investment vehicles that's the money answer show with jordan goodman on the voice america business channel every monday at 12 p.m pacific standard time
6: are you a business innovator or are you just sitting on the sidelines
5: Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN.
1: You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg.com at familycaregiversunite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite.
2: Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Brian Hodges. Our topic is physicians, humane caring, and family caregivers. Let's talk now, uh, Brian, please, about more things that you want to do and want to see done to help family caregivers care for their family members with serious illnesses and also your challenge your message for the challenges of family caregivers now what more do you do you want to do and see done to improve this help
3: so we've We've talked quite a lot so far about the, the nature of the interpersonal reaction, the work that needs to be done to make people feel more welcome. Uh, those are the interpersonal aspects, and I think they're crucial. We've alluded to another thing, which is the electronic era, which is on us, and it's got some great strengths, but there are also some limitations. I mentioned a major limitation, which is it's possible to sit in one's doctor's office or one's nurse practitioner's office and have them look at a screen screen the whole time without talking to you (laughs) I think that's terrible I don't think we need that but what that means is that there's another presence in the room there is a source of deep information that can be accessed and shared together just a few weeks ago I had a patient uh, come to see me Uh, it's a young man and his mother and they had some questions Uh, They had heard certain things uh, quoted to them about the treatment of the condition. And I said, you know what, let's sit down together and look at the internet. Let's do it together. I don't know the answer to that, but let's find it. And the three of us sat around the computer, and we looked up some information. We chatted about it. I helped interpret some of the medical issues, and that was very interesting. That's a new way of practicing, but it was an exciting one, and I think they found it very satisfying. It also helped me because I was able to address what they were concerned about directly. I think we have an opportunity to improve the quality of information that is available To people to support their care. One of the big problems that I think family members and advocates and support people have is they often become isolated. The internet actually has a very, very rich array of materials that allow people to link Not just static materials. We can all go and we can look up a condition. Uh, I remember one time myself having a worry about a particular condition. I had a certain number of symptoms of something, and I could go and read about it. And that is reassuring or worrying, (laughs) depending. But I'm talking about things that are more interactive. So, for example, there are um, websites that are run by various groups uh, that allow people to interact using social media and gain support and information from each other. I'm struck by how many patients today will come and say, "Ah, I was on the chat site of the uh, support group for multiple sclerosis or I was on the site of the friends and family and schizophrenics." And and it was it's very interesting because it's a it's a social element that that on one hand reduces the isolation but also allows information to be shared. The Phoenix project that we've been talking about is beginning to engage in this and I think this will be helpful. We use Twitter we have a social media coordinator, and we have a Twitter handle, as it's called, for anyone who uses Twitter. It's at AMS Phoenix. And one of the things that we started there is what's called a tweet chat. Now, I will confess, and probably other listeners, perhaps even yourself, will be with me, I did not grow up in the era where any of these <laughs> media were available to me, so I'm learning as fast as I can. But a tweet chat is an opportunity to talk uh, in real time with people through the social media. And two right. months ago, there was an excellent one with a group called Treat Diaries, which is a, uh, a system that allows people to share narratives about their illness in public, uh, anonymized if they want, so that people can read about others with a similar illness experience, family or the person themselves experiencing it. And I was really struck by the power of being able to tell stories about one's experience in a public space. We're also starting a blog. The Phoenix website is, is, is very simple. It's www.themsphoenix.ca. And on that blog, we hope to engage in many of the conversations we're having today between us, uh, between the two of us. But, of course, the Internet allows a much wider conversation. So I think social media and other media tools are really uh, potentially effective in broadening the circle of communication for people, with different conditions, with different illnesses, and their family and their support.
2: Brian, just a quick supplementary to that. As you very well know, things in physicians and other healthcare professionals use called clinical practice guidelines are very popular and very useful, at least that's the message I get. question is, would something like... A family caregiving guideline or a support person guideline be a useful development for support persons, family caregivers, and so on? What do you think?
3: It's a fascinating idea. I mean, the closest I've come is, is our, in our previous discussion of, of organ transplant, it's a requirement in our system that people have a support person and some work has been done on what that role is and how to support the support person. I I, I don't know. It's an interesting idea about a a clinical practice guideline for that. Certainly it would be helpful to articulate um, what the role is and help people on the care side, the Uh, understand each other I think perhaps to you talked about accessing the circle of care I think maybe there could be an articulation of best practices of how a hospital uh, a physician's office community clinic could facilitate and support family members I think that would be very welcome
2: great now very last question What's your message, your personal message to families, family caregivers, and the support persons and the person-centered care persons that you've been talking about? When these, these people are caring for family members with serious illnesses of one form or another, often at home, what's your message for them?
3: I think the message that I would return to is that we tend to create a little bit of an artificial distinction between the patient, the family, the support, and the health professionals. Our earlier discussion about burnout among health professionals who went into the the field, to care, illustrates that we're all human. We're all capable of caring. We're all capable of having burnout and compassion fatigue. I have met so many people who are family members uh, who also experience the same thing. And I think what's really important is to create a space, a safe space, and an open space where we can all share together in this, where the patient, the family member, and the healthcare professional can share the experiences, can talk about it openly, and to help each other so that we're actually working as a Team, that We're working as a collective because the problems that we're all facing together are very complex. They're not easily solved and they take time. And uh, I think if we can find some way to build that notion of shared support and responsibility and respect into the system, we will make a major
2: advance. And if I just uh, ad lib a little bit on this one, perhaps the stress levels will go down on all sides, that is to say the sense that there's a team of people involved looking after things in various ways, including the support persons and so on. That. Is helpful because teamwork is often a good way to work, but that's, as I say, my perspective, and that would require another show on Family Caregivers Unite to actually debate. So I won't. Um, Now, I I want to say first of all, thank you very much uh, for sharing with us all all of your experience, your insights, and your advice, and particularly um, the the the. Way in which person-centered care and what the AMS project is doing to create that space you were just talking about that everybody can share, everybody can communicate with each other in, and everybody can build trust and a relationship to deal with troublesome difficult challenging situations all around so if i can just say this to you obviously we wish you all success in all of your work but especially with the ams phoenix project please keep it going strongly and if there's an opportunity for us to talk again when the results are fully out i'd be glad to do that I want to say thank you to our listeners. We'd like to hear your comments on this episode. And from our listeners, I'd like to hear about ideas for topics or if you're interested in being a guest on the show. In our next episode, we'll talk about multiple sclerosis, family conversations about care. Please join us, same time, same spot on the Internet. Talk to you then.
1: Thank you again for joining us this week for Family Caregivers Unite with your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley.